2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 247 of our Civil War podcast. My name is
0: Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With this show, we'll pick up where we left off last time with our look back at what happened during the second year of the war. As y'all recall, by the end of the last episode, we were up to May of 1862.
2: During the preceding six weeks, McClellan's massive Army of the Potomac had transferred by water from the vicinity of Washington, D.C. to the Virginia Peninsula, southeast of Richmond. Little Mac had transported his army to the peninsula, ostensibly to steal a march on the rebels and make a swift strike at Richmond. But he squandered any advantage he had gained through the move by deciding to stop and besiege Yorktown rather than using his overwhelming numerical advantage to quickly break through the Confederate lines there.
0: By the beginning of May, Little Mac had positioned his heavy siege cannon and was finally ready to shell the Confederate defensive lines. However, just before the big bombardment was to begin, the Rebel commander, Joseph E. Johnston, ordered an evacuation of Yorktown. The Confederates slipped away up the peninsula, and the Army of the Potomac lurched forward in pursuit after having just wasted an entire month stalled in front of Yorktown because of McClellan's overcautiousness.
2: During the Confederate withdrawal up the peninsula toward Richmond, units from each army clashed in rear-guard actions at Williamsburg on May 5th and at Eltham's Landing on the 7th. The fighting at Williamsburg was surprisingly fierce, resulting in nearly 4,000 casualties. On May 9, the Confederates abandoned Norfolk, and with the loss of the naval base there, two days later they scuttled the CSS Virginia to prevent her capture by the Yankees.
0: Joe Johnston's retreat up the peninsula continued until the rebel army crossed the Chickahominy River just a stone's throw from Richmond. While the Federals followed, Union gunboats steamed up the James River to threaten the Confederate capital. On May 15th, though, rebel batteries at Drury's Bluff turned back the advance of the Federal vessels, and Richmond was saved from a naval bombardment.
2: The Union Navy may have been turned back at Drury's Bluff, but advance elements of McClellan's army crossed the Chickahominy on May 23rd, 24th. Before long, some units had pushed forward to within several miles of Richmond and could hear the tolling of church bells in the city.
0: With the enemy at the gates of Richmond, Confederate President Jefferson Davis held a cabinet meeting attended by Joseph Johnston. When the discussion came around to a possible retreat of the Army, Davis's military adviser Robert E. Lee, exclaimed, Richmond must not be given up. It shall not be given up.
2: Earlier, Lee had proposed an aggressive offensive movement by Stonewall Jackson out in the Shenandoah Valley. Because if Jackson could clear the Valley of Federals and advance north to the Potomac River then he might increase the Lincoln administration's concerns about the safety of Washington and prevent federal reinforcements from joining McClellan's operations against
0: Richmond. To that end, Jackson now moved to the western outskirts of the valley to strike the vanguard of Union General John C. Fremont's forces. On May 8, Stonewall defeated the Federals at McDowell and then chased them into the Allegheny Mountains. From there, Jackson returned to the main valley, headed north, and united with Richard Ewell's division in order to attack the Federals in the Shenandoah commanded by Nathaniel Banks.
2: Jackson pushed his troops relentlessly, using speed and surprise to confound Banks. The Confederates routed a Union force at Front Royal on May 23rd, Jackson's 17,000-man Army of the Valley then overtook and defeated Banks' retreating Federals on May 25th at the First Battle of Winchester.
0: The Federals fled to Harper's Ferry while the rebels at Winchester gathered up stockpiles of supplies and equipment and made jokes about the generosity of commissary banks. Jackson followed the defeated enemy to Harper's Ferry and demonstrated against the Union defenses there. In Washington, Lincoln saw an opportunity to trap the overextended Jackson and ordered federal troops, including some slated to join McClellan, to move against Stonewall.
2: Stonewall pulled back just in time to narrowly escape the federal trap, and his stunning string of tactical successes against the hapless Yankees in the Shenandoah Valley earned him everlasting fame. In a larger sense, by halting the reinforcement of McClellan's army in front of Richmond, he had also won a resounding strategic victory and helped lower the odds against Joe Johnston's army defending the rebel capital.
0: Meanwhile, in front of Richmond, Johnston saw an opening for a strike against the Army of the Potomac. McClellan had defi- divided his army, extending his right wing north across the Chickahominy to protect his supply line and to link up with the expected reinforcements from Fredericksburg. Johnston decided to attack the portion of the enemy army south of the river. It was a complicated plan that required the convergence of several columns.
2: The effects of a drenching rain on May twenty sixth twenty seventh were compounded by a furious thunderstorm the evening of may 30th and the swollen chickahominy threatened to wash away the bridges that were the only links between the two wings of the union army the confederate attack hit the vulnerable yankees on may 31st but delays confusion and misunderstood orders played havoc with johnston's plan Fierce fighting south of the Chickahominy swirled around a crossroads at Seven Pines and a railroad station at Fair Oaks. The rebels achieved some gains, but stiffening Federal resistance and the arrival of Union reinforcements from north of the river prevented a Confederate victory. And late in the day Joe Johnston was severely wounded and carried from the field. The fighting resumed the next morning, but ended in a stalemate. The Battle of Fair Oaks, or Seven Pines, cost both sides more than 11,000 casualties.
0: After the fighting ended, the Army of the Potomac still remained standing at the gates of Richmond, but the most significant result of the battle was that with Johnston's wounding, Jefferson Davis appointed Robert E. Lee to command the rebel army defending the Confederate capital, and the new rebel commander wasted little time in beginning to plan Richmond's salvation.
2: Also in May 1862, Major General David Hunter, in command of the Union's Department of the South, including federal footholds along the coasts of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, issues General Orders No. 11. Noting that he had placed the department under martial law in April, Hunter says that, quote, slavery and martial law in a free country are altogether incompatible.
0: That being so, Hunter goes on to proclaim that, quote, The persons in these three states heretofore held as slaves are therefore declared forever free.
2: Like a similar action by John C. Fremont in Missouri in 1861, Hunter's proclamation places Abraham Lincoln on the horns of a dilemma. And on May 19th, the president states that, quote, Neither General Hunter nor any other commander or person has been authorized by the government of the United States to make proclamations declaring the slaves of any state free. End quote. Lincoln does point out that decisions regarding emancipation, quote, I reserve to myself.
0: The president goes on to remind the nation, and especially the border states, of the possibility of gradual compensated emancipation and pleads with the people of the border states to reconsider that proposal. But Lincoln's plea will go unanswered.
2: In Washington on May 15th, Abraham Lincoln approves the creation of the Department of Agriculture. And then on May 20th, Congress passes and the President signs a key piece of Republican legislation, the Homestead Act which granted 160 acres of land to any adult citizen or intended citizen man or woman who stays on the land 5 years and makes certain improvements alternatively a settler might purchase land for a dollar and 25 cents an acre after only 6 months of residence a policy that was opposed before the civil war by southern politicians who were fearful that homesteaders would bring anti-slavery sentiment with them into the territories. The Homestead Act now will make it possible for some 25,000 settlers to stake claims to more than 3 million acres of land before the war's end.
0: Meanwhile, out in the western theater of the war, in the aftermath of the Battle of Shiloh, a huge Union army led by Henry Halleck spends the month of May slowly advancing toward the critical rail junction at Corinth in the northeast corner of Mississippi. But there will be no battle at Corinth. On the night of may twenty ninth, thirtieth, the heavily outnumbered Confederate Army, now under the command of PGT Beauregard, evacuates the town, which federal troops will enter on may thirty first.
1: On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to
2: podcasts. In May, even while General Hunter attempted to abolish slavery in the Union's Department of the South, a courageous black man named Robert Smalls refused to wait for freedom and he took matters into his own hands. At Charleston, South Carolina, the Confederate side-wheel steamer Planter is transporting artillery guns across the harbor. On the evening of May 12, 1862, Smalls, a slave working as a pilot on Planter, bid goodnight to the ship's white officers as they went ashore and left the vessel and her cargo in his hands to be battened down for the night. Instead, Smalls takes on some passengers, his wife and children, and those of his brother John, who is another member of the Planters' all-black crew. Then in the wee hours of the morning of May 13th, Smalls quietly gives the order to cast off, and Planter begins a short but harrowing journey running past the fortifications in Charleston Harbor to reach the Union blockaders patrolling just beyond.
0: Any of the fortifications or blockaders could open fire, sinking the vessel and killing all aboard, because Smalls, his crew, and their passengers have vowed not to be taken alive by the Confederates. But Planter, a familiar sight in the harbor, sails unchallenged under the Rebel guns, giving the correct signals on its steam whistle, then raises a white flag, which is recognized by the Federal warships. An eyewitness on the USS Onward will later report, quote, When they discovered that we would not fire on them, there was a rush of contrabands out on her deck, some dancing, some singing, whistling, jumping. One of the colored men stepped forward and, taking off his hat, shouted, Good morning, sir. I brought you some of the old United States guns, sir.
2: Robert Smalls and his crew will receive a reward for transferring this Confederate prize to the Union and Smalls and Planter, which he will eventually captain, will provide valuable service to the Union for the rest of the war.
0: On June 1st, 1862, Robert E. Lee assumed command of the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee's appointment marked a turning point in the war in the East, but few could have predicted where the road ahead would carry the Confederacy.
2: Lee recognized that the static defense the Confederates had employed in northern Virginia through the winter and spring of 1862 had to change. If they were to achieve independence, their main field army in the East had to seize the initiative, and that demanded risks. Inferior in its manpower and resources, the South couldn't win a lengthy conflict. Only audacity could stave off defeat and achieve nationhood for the Confederacy, and so Lee planned to follow the road that few, if any, other Southern generals dared to take.
0: Wherever Lee looked, the Confederacy appeared beleaguered. McClellan's Army of the Potomac remained on Richmond's outskirts, threatening to end the war by capturing the rebel capital. In the West, Union gains were mounting. The Federals already occupied Corinth, Mississippi, and on June 5th, they seized Fort Pillow, Tennessee, opening the Mississippi River as far south as Memphis, which surrendered the next day after the dramatic Battle of the Rams.
2: Elsewhere, Federal troops occupied Jackson, Tennessee, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, while threatening the important railroad hub of Chattanooga, Tennessee. In New Orleans, the Union General Benjamin Butler's harsh policies during the federal occupation of the South's largest city were earning him the infamous nickname, Beast Butler. In Richmond, Jefferson Davis admitted to the governor of Mississippi, quote, My efforts to provide for the military wants of your section have been sadly frustrated.
0: In an effort to turn the situation around, Davis selected new commanders, assigning Earl Van Dorn to the defense of Mississippi and Braxton Bragg to head the Western Department.
2: In the Shenandoah Valley, though, there was cause for hope. Stonewall Jackson and his army eluded converging pursuers, turned and gave battle at Cross Keys on June 8th and Port Republic on June 9th. These two victories brought Jackson's brilliant valley campaign to a close and made him the foremost Confederate hero at that point in the war.
0: Three days after Port Republic, Jeb Stuart and 1,200 Confederate cavalrymen started a spectacular ride clear around McClellan's army outside Richmond. Pushing his troops to their limits on the four-day ride and confounding the Yankees, Stewart circled the Army of the Potomac and furnished Lee with valuable intelligence on Little Mac's dispositions north of the Chickahominy.
2: Now came Lee's chance to seize the initiative. Stewart's reconnaissance revealed that McClellan's army remained divided by the Chickahominy and the enemy's right flank, north of the river, was up in the air. That is, it wasn't anchored on a terrain feature. Lee decided to strike the Yankees north of the Chickahominy, and an essential part of his plan was Jackson's arrival from the Shenandoah Valley. The rebels would attempt to turn Little Mac's right flank, and thereby not just save Richmond, but destroy the Federal Army.
0: It was actually McClellan who moved first on June 25th, advancing his left flank to gain a better position for his siege guns. The Confederate forces south of the Chickahominy stopped this federal movement, and the fight at Oak Grove is considered the first clash of what became known as the Seven Days Battles.
2: Lee now unleashed his offensive north of the Chickahominy. On June 26, the Rebel troops struck fiercely at Mechanicsville, or Beaver Dam Creek, but Stonewall Jackson's units failed to arrive in time, and the Federals bloodied the Confederate attackers before they withdrew after dark.
0: The Confederates followed on the 27th, finding the enemy at Gaines Mill. Once again, the rebels took terrible losses attacking the Yankees, but late in the day, the southern infantry broke through the Union line, forcing the blue-clad defenders to fall back south of the river. McClellan was proving incapable of handling the Army of the Potomac on the defensive, and he tried to claim that this retreat across the Chickahominy was merely a quote-unquote change of base south to the James River.
2: Lee tried to inflict a decisive defeat on the reeling Little Mac. Twice on June 28th at Savage's Station, and on June 29th at Glendale, or Fraser's Farm, the Confederates attacked the Federal Columns. But difficult terrain, faulty staff work, and Stonewall Jackson's oddly lethargic performance stymied Lee's plan to hit the retreating enemy with coordinated assaults. At both places, the Federals beat back the rebel attacks, saving their army from possible destruction.
0: During the night of June 30th, July 1st, the Army of the Potomac withdrew to a strong position at Malvern Hill, just north of the James River. There, Lee tried once more to defeat the enemy, but the Confederate attacks were bloodily repulsed. McClellan's lieutenants wanted the army to launch a counterattack, but Little Mac refused to consider it. Instead, he ordered the retreat to continue down river to a fortified camp at Harrison's Landing.
2: McClellan's performance as a general during the 7 days battles was abysmal, with his personal conduct at times being outright cowardly, as he consistently absented himself from the scenes of actual fighting. Robert E. Lee's debut as commander of the Army of Northern Virginia was not without its mistakes, but to his credit Once Lee seized the initiative, he refused to relinquish it. Although his army had suffered serious casualties and had failed to inflict a crippling defeat on the enemy, Lee had nevertheless saved Richmond. In just a month's time, Robert E. Lee had altered the course of the war in Virginia. When Lee had assumed command of the army, one officer had predicted his boldness, stating that Lee was, quote, AUDACITY PERSONIFIED Indeed, the Army of Northern Virginia now followed a different trumpet, one that before long would summon it to carry its banners northward.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity for Emancipation, African Americans and the Fight for Freedom by Glenn David Brasher.
2: Like last week, we thought we'd use this year in review show to re-recommend a book. And this was our recommendation for episode number 132 and was one of our favorite 1862 books. So here you go. It's The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity for Emancipation, African-Americans and the Fight for Freedom by Glenn David Brasher.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
2: Quite a few of you have been sending in questions for episode number 250, so thanks for that. And you guys still have a couple or several weeks left to do that, so it's not too late if you still want to get a question to us. And if you do send one, you'll get entered into that drawing we'll do during that show for that Civil War atlas.
0: As we wrap up this show, we wanted to be sure to say thank you to Marion in Australia for his donation to the podcast this past week.
2: Well, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week when we continue with our look back at 1862. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.